Hi, I'm Jim Juno, and you've opened up the Juno Files, a podcast which deals with Hollywood television, entertainment, and everything in between. On June 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, as part of PBS's American Master Series, Mae West, Dirty Blonde, will premiere. This is the first major documentary film to explore Mae West's life and career as, in her words, climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong, as she became a writer, performer, and subversive agitator for social change. I talk with the producers of Mae West, Dirty Blonde, Julia Marchese, and Sally Rosenthal, as we go to the interview now. Hello, Sally Rosenthal and Julia Marchese, is it? Yes, that's Marquise. right. Great. Welcome to the show today. This is the Juno Files, and we are talking with the producers of a new documentary coming out. It's part of the American Masters series on PBS. It's called May West Dirty Blonde, and it's going to be airing on June 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I guess 7 p.m. Central Time. You can consult your local listings to find out exactly what time it is, but 8 p.m. on the East Coast. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Now, let me ask you this, May West. I mean, this is this is really the first, I want to say, in-depth uh, documentary on this legendary actress's life, isn't it? It is. Yeah, there have been a couple of other things, but they didn't really focus on her life story. They there's one that focused on the men in her life, and I'm not sure what else. Right, maybe maybe been part of the uh, like the uh, bio, the old biography series that was on A and E. Now this is on PBS. Tell me what was the uh, what was the story behind this particular documentary? Um, well, Sally and I are, are filmmakers. We've known each other for about 15 years, and uh, we met working on another PBS series called Make Em Laugh, which is about the history of comedy. Um, and we both came across these clips of Mae West, um, her, her, some of her early movies, and both of us were just blown away by her. And, you know, it's kind of a thing where I think we might have recognized her name or maybe her face, but didn't really know who she was. And I think we were just astounded at how funny she was in these movies, which are, you know, from the 30s. Um, so we kind of became obsessed with her. And then, you know, uh, fast forward 15 years, we've worked together on a couple other projects. And then we were thinking, why has nobody done this? Why has nobody made a film about Mae West? So um, an American Masters seemed like the perfect place to do it. So that's the story. Now, you mentioned you worked together before. I believe that was on the Billy the Kid documentary. Oh no no! Um, oh. That's uh, it was on a series that Sally produced, actually called "Make Them Laugh." Make them laugh. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then again on Soundbreaking. Yes. Yes, about five years ago. Yeah. yeah. And that was also a PBS series about um, the art of music recording. But Mae West, though, I mean, this is a person who, you know, I'll be honest with you, I knew I knew about her from the stage, and I knew about her from the screen. What I didn't know mm-hmm. was that she was that she was on all avenues of entertainment during her era i mean stage screen singing she had records out um you know all that all that was was may west and she wrote the screen i mean she wrote the uh the, the stage play it was all her wasn't it yeah and she wrote almost except for her last film she wrote all her dialogue in all of her films as well that's right i mean and, she uh, I remember in the in the uh, one of the, in the promos that she came in and said, "This is the way we're going to do it." 
<laughs> yeah, that was one of the things we loved learning about her was that not only was she funny and witty, um, but she really was in charge of her business. And she was a writer and a producer. And, uh, you know, she didn't direct, but some of the actors said she might as well have. <laughs> Directors <laughs> said she might as well have. She kind of took over sometimes. So she was this force. And, you know, she she demanded her worth as well. She was um, at one point the second highest paid person in America. Is that right, Sally? Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, she was the, the second highest paid person in America, only behind William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Oh and that's because she demanded her, her worth. She demanded to be, you know, to, to, to get paid. That's <laughs> yeah, right. There's this great story that one of our interviewees told us about how when, you know, when she first went out to Hollywood, she met with the head of Paramount, Adolf Zucker. Uh, I never know if I'm pronouncing that right. Zucker? Zucker. 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 And, yes. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what's it going to take for you to come? And she's like, well, I want to write my own scripts. I want to choose my own costume designs and I want money. And he says, how much money? And she says, well, how much do you make? And he told her and she says, I want a dollar more. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, as we know, with women getting paid in Hollywood, you know, that for that time, that was a big it was a, you know, the big statement. So Mm -hmm. we love we love that about her. Well, women getting paid in Hollywood that continues up until today. Exactly. I mean, exactly. This is what really struck me yeah. was that she was she was, I want to say trailblazer, but that that term is so out of touch, uh, well, not and overused rather today. But really, I mean, she was not. I mean, women did not write movies. Uh, women were not the, well, the if they were stars. Actually, I'll. I'll... I might correct you there. I mean, they did write movies in the beginning. Women were more involved in Hollywood than I think a lot of people realize. It's just that was the pre-talkies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, women yeah. had a very big creative role. It was it was when movies um, started to become profitable. That right. We shouldn't leave these in the hands of the women. Right. I mean, there was Alice Guy Blachet and um, and and yeah. I believe uh, I believe some other uh, female directors out there. But like you said. Yeah. When, that was pre-code era, and also yeah. it was it was during a time of pre-talkies, and then when they started yeah. when sound came in, all of a sudden the men decided to take over. Exactly. And May actually did a screen test in 1921, and just the idea of May West in a silent film is so hard to imagine. I mean, without without her voice, who is she? <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, her, her accent and everything is so much a part of who she is. Now she now you uh, you have a lot of people lined up on this interview on these interviews with the documentary and and I'm just wondering because I noticed a lot of names there were there anybody who you, you really that you wanted more than anybody and, and that you got um, interviewing Ringo Starr definitely a, a one of those life milestone moments. Yeah, career <laughs> highlight for sure. Yeah. <laughs> How hard was he to and get? Um, How hard was he to get? By the I way, I mean that was so. That was so. I mean, I think both of us were shocked and pleasantly surprised. And I think you know we we reached out to everybody that we could think of who was still living, who had met May or worked with her. Um, and you know, Ringo was in a movie with her in the seventies, and Sexet. We yes. really didn't. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And we didn't really expect him to answer. I mean, he's a beetle, right? But, you know, but, but somehow, and this is also credit to Sally and, and being persistent um, with getting these interviews, but, but somehow he said yes. And my theory is that he's 
constantly asked to talk about music and the Beatles. And I think this maybe was a breath of fresh air for him. Um, but he was really, really lovely. And we were so excited to meet him. No, you yeah, mentioned- no he, he was wonderful. And it wasn't actually that hard to set up. Uh, he's, I think Julie's right. It was just, it was nice for him to be asked about something other than being a Beatle for once. And, uh, I think, and I think he, he loved May, right? I think he really had an affection for her. Yes, definitely. I think he had a lot of fun on that film. Yes. I mean, he said that's why he took the role, is he just thought it was going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't know if you, um, I don't know if anybody out there has seen the movie Sextet, but it is, I mean, it was her last movie. She was in her 80s. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she it's put, a wild movie. It is. It is a, it is a rather... Uh, I want to say strange, but it's an acquired taste. It's a cult, become cult <laughs> status, actually, you know. But um, yeah. But the thing is, you mentioned one of the one of y'all said the, the key term "still living." I mean, yes, she passed away about eight about forty years ago in, in nineteen eighty, I believe. Yep. And yep. And really, still living was her was it a job finding people who who knew her who was still around. It was. It, it was challenging because, um, I mean, anybody who worked with her and was still around, it was going to be from the very end of her career. And when actually when we did Make Them Laugh, uh, and there was a sequence on May West, we interviewed Herbert Kenwith, who was her stage manager, and he has since passed away. But that was the only interview like that that we were able to use of somebody sort of from the old days. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, she, you know, the, her friends toward the end of her life um, were only too happy to talk about her, but it's a limited pool. And early in, and early in her career, I imagine you had to rely on a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, like Photoplay magazine and and um, um, ma- movie fan magazines of the era, which she didn't give a lot of interviews to, did she? Uh, not re- well. She gave a decent number of print interviews in her Broadway era and, and like vaudeville and Broadway, she'd pretty right. much talk to anybody, but she was um, very controlling about her image. So, you know, in terms of having her voice recorded or, or her image, it was, um, that was a challenge. Although she did write an autobiography in, was it 1959? Um, uh, 69, I think. 69, right. And and we did use that. I mean, we had to sort of take it all with a grain of salt because I don't know if everything she wrote was exactly true. I think she's like <laughs> sort of, <laughs> she made up her own fairy tale in a sense. Um, because as Sally said, she was very controlling of her image and she wanted to, you know, project the, the image that she wanted. Um, but it was at least helpful to get her voice and, 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 um, and then, you know, the other thing that we did have, which was incredibly useful, um, was a voice recording of her from, and I don't know the, what is the year on that, Sally? Oh, that was from nine. it was from the late sixties. I want to say 1968. Yeah. Um, so- and nobody had ever heard it before. It was 20 hours long. This guy recorded her in three different sessions. And that was incredible because, you know, she has such a unique voice and such a unique way of expressing herself that. We really didn't want narration. We wanted her to tell her own story, and which is absolutely what she would have wanted to. And uh, and we were able to do that because of that interview. That yeah. was what I was going to ask because I saw an American Masters, um, I believe it was American Masters, just the other night, and they had. Um, it, I'm sorry. Yes, it was on Hedy Lamarr, uh, called Bombshell. Right. Yeah. 
And they mm-hmm. and who and I don't know who did it. Uh, forgive me for not knowing who the producers were on this one, but they found a recording that a newspaper reporter had of her on the phone, Hedy Lamar on the phone. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. thought that would be so great if they could find something like that with Mae West. And it sounds like you did. I mean, that is that is unreal. Nobody's ever heard that, have they? Nope, it has never been heard. Uh, we had to transfer it. It, it. We were we were really excited at the possibilities that it opened up. Tell me how. But you it f- was a little challenging because the interview she's she's giving an interview. I think in her apartment, and there's like sirens going by. There's telephones <laughs> ringing. Somebody's coming to the door. You know, she's very much her life, um, and, and so she's kind of always interrupted. But she is very candid, and she's got this amazing 1930s gangster kind of accent that we just love. And uh, it's just it's so nice to hear the way she really spoke. Right. She she punctuates every sentence with see. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I went to Broadway. See, yeah, like <laughs> oh, kind of like a uh, like Edward G. Robinson type of type yeah, of talking. Yeah. Now, how does Mary? How did you when you found out? How did what was your response to being Mary Jane West going to May West? I mean, does she talk about that in the uh, in the uh, recording? No, she talks about that in her autobiography, and it didn't seem to be. Um, a sort of defining enough moment for us to go into it. It was basically, she, she thought that the why on Mary Jane, it went down and she didn't like it. So she wants to change it to May because the E went up and that was more optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Now, but she also, she, now once let's, let's jump forward a little bit. She's on Broadway. Now she writes a play that um, it's, it's not titled sex at first, but she changes well, it, oh, right, yeah. it eventually became sex, yes, and but it was it was titled something else at first. I forget what it was, but it but she changed it to the albatross. The albatross, <laughs> that's what it was. The albatross, yeah. and mm-hmm. she didn't like that, and she changed it to sex, which is this is what nineteen nineteen twenty two, nineteen twenty. Um, twenty six. Twenty six. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day. Uh, this was, I mean, newspapers wouldn't even print the title of the play because in that yeah. in that era, and it ended up landing her in prison, didn't it? Yeah, but she was, you know, she was a very somebody in our film called one of our interviewees called her a very early influencer. She was a master of PR, and she knew what would get people to come to the theaters. And, you know, naming her place sex was one, and getting arrested was the other, right? And I think <laughs> she knew what kind of press she would get from being arrested. And sure enough, when she went to jail, ticket, ticket sales went through the roof. So she was very, very canny. She understood marketing. She understood public relations. And um, it, was, it was all very calculated. Absolutely. She, you know, they offered her the option of paying a $500 fine. And she said, no, this is great for me. I'm going to go to jail. And and some reporter asked her, you know, what do you think is going to come out of this? And she said, I expect this is going to be the making of me. And uh, she she knew how much Anka would generate. and, And she was very savvy at every stage of her career. She was pretty savvy. Do you go into her relationship with Texas Guinan at all? Not really. Do we? No, I know no, that, not really. I know they were supposed to be best friends at one point, but um, I didn't I know. I think they were friends, but I don't, you know, 
we sort of delve into this a little. May is not really a woman who had that many friends, <laughs> interestingly. Really? Um, she says, and actually in her audio we have, she does say that women are not my kind of people. Wow. <laughs> um, she had a lot of men around her a lot, but she says her sister is a friend of hers. Marlena Dietrich was a friend, but she just, she was a bit of a loner, interestingly, in Hollywood. She didn't really go with the scene, um, which, you know, I think what she says is that I'm too busy. I'm working. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have time for that. Now, she, she was one of the largest, I mean, she was the largest box office draw in the early, in the 30s, the Depression era. And and she mm-hmm. knew her worth, you know. So, and yeah. I remember her. I remember reading someplace where she said that that you know she's worth every penny of it, and she makes people laugh because they need a laugh at this point. Right. Yeah, I think she was the perfect woman for for that moment because she was also because of her accent, she was very relatable to audiences. She wasn't. She didn't put on airs. She didn't sound. Patrician, like a lot of the studios were training their actresses to, to do. And, uh, and, and then she comes in with these, you know, she's identifying with the working class and she's making jokes about the upper class. I think it was, it was very relatable to people who were struggling then, which was a third of the country. Exactly. Um, now, the character of Mae West, now, like you said, she didn't really talk that way in real life. Um, with the uh, with I, I'm not going to try I'm not even going to attempt to try to do a Mae West voice, but um, <laughs> but that was what was her influences? Who were her influences? Um, oh, um, Lillian, Lillian Russell. Lillian Russell. That was yeah. Is that yeah. right? Um, and the who was the other? Was that the, the woman that her her mother took her to see? Yeah. Uh, the, oh God. I know I'm blanking. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the one who the the I don't care girl. What was her name? Yeah, Eva Tangway. Even Tangway. Um, yeah, she was you know this sort of sexualized performer in the you know in the teens who who was on the stage and apparently May's mother would take her to see these performances which were considered a little risque, uh, maybe toward the burlesque, and I do think that she had found some inspiration in, in sort of how to inject sexuality into her act as, as a selling point. How long did it take, how long did it take you to get this, uh, to get this from start to finish from idea to, to finished product? Mm. Well, Uh, our primary source of funding was the national endowment for the humanities. Um, sorry. Okay. That's okay. Uh, that they were really the ones who made this possible, and so we wrote our NEH submission. I think in the spring of 2017, but it was about nine months before we heard from them. So then, I guess we started it the fall of 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it, was, it was about a year from when we started production, but from conception, it was a little bit longer. Now, after movies, now she only made, I think, what, 12 movies? Uh, I think it's 10. Because, well, 10. I always forget how many there was in the early years. The two in the 70s. And, uh, and there was Myra Breckenridge. Yeah. In the 30s and 40s. There was Myra Breckenridge and Sextet in the 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that before then, you got to go all the way back to the 40s. 
because she yeah, was, right. yeah. The last one was 43 my little chickadee right yes um, no I th- it was the heat song it's oh only, right 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 it's the only film where she didn't write her own dialogue and she right. did it as a, fr- as a favor to a friend and it it was not successful. I was going to say, I don't I don't remember that one, but I remember My Little Chickadee was with um, uh, W.C. Fields. And yeah. Now, the the legend is they didn't like each other. Is that true? Did you find out? They loathed each other. They loathed, uh, they loathed each other? <laughs> had a, uh, she, she had a stipulation put in her contract that if he came to the set drunk, she could kick him off. And at one point he did, and she did. And so I don't think he came in drunk after that. But she, she hated the smell of cigars, and he was a really heavy cigar smoker. She didn't drink at all, and he was a really heavy drinker. And I think their comedy ideas didn't really mesh. So that, that's the only project they did together. But so many people think of them as this like legendary comedy duo. And it's mm-hmm. kind of funny. Of course. Now the other on the other end of the spectrum, there's Cary Grant, who she gave she gave the big break to, and I believe yeah. she done him wrong. Yes, I, I think some people debate about you know he was already an actor, um, right? I mean he'd done a couple yeah, of films, he just hadn't been anything that was really a hit. Right, and uh, you know the, the the legend goes she saw him on the on the studio lot. And, you know, this handsome man. And she said, who's that guy? And somebody said, oh, that's Cary Grant. You know, we haven't found a picture for him yet. And she said, well, if he can talk, I'll take him. <laughs> and so she put him in, she put him in two films, actually. Um, and they, you know, they have a very interesting dynamic. Um, you know, and she done him wrong. He's sort of this young ingenue, you know, and, and she's this older, more sexually aggressive woman sort of coming on to him. And it's just something... It's something you still don't see much in movies, right? That kind of dynamic, right. sort of the tables turned between men and women. So um, he has, one of our interviewees says he almost looks scared next to her. <laughs> in those roles. He's sort of like fiddling with the chair. I mean, he looks yeah, he's nervous. Horrible. Yeah. Now, yeah, he, I mean, he looks so sort of soft and squishy, and she's very authoritative in her role. It's also, she's playing a character that at that point she had really honed to precision. Um, the, the diamond Lil character. Right. And so I think, you know, he comes in and, and he's meant to sort of be there as a foil for her, not really his own character. Well, see, that's something a lot of people I don't think realize is that she was 40 years old before she made her first movie. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, if you don't count yeah. the, the silent film that has that been lost through history? Well, she wasn't yeah. in, she was in yeah. the screen test has been lost, but, ah, okay. um, yeah, so she, she had been on Broadway and, and she went out West, I guess when she was 38 to make her f- first film night after night. And, you know, that is again, one of those things that by t- even by today's standards is shocking. You know, a woman can't go to Hollywood when you're 38, you know, that's when it's kind of ending for you. Right. And yeah. she defied all of that. And that's another one of the reasons that we found her to be such a, an inspirational figure. Um, she just did not care. And in this now, in this current day and age, with with the uh, with race in- incidents happening, um, she had an interesting story. Um, I believe it was a her- the hotel that they put her up in when she first came to uh, Hollywood. Is it Ravenscroft? Is that what it was called? 
Um, Ravenswood. I Ravenswood. think that it's a tall tale. We couldn't find any uh. evidence of it at all. It, um, I mean, we even looked through property records to see like when that building changed ownership. Uh, the, rumor, the rumor, of course, is that she owned this building and had a black boyfriend and who you know wanted to come see her and they, he wasn't let in and so she bought the building and yeah and that and that rumor I just we, we just couldn't find evidence for it it's a nice idea and you know and I, and then we try to explore the ways that she was challenging um you know racial discrimination in her own way um in the film and and you know we don't want to overstate her as sort of being this civil rights activist because she certainly wasn't but in her small way i think she you know the way that she has um the way that she converses with her maids her black maids in her films and the way she she actually gave them credits their the actresses had credits in her films which was not done at that time um and the fact that she demanded that Duke Ellington's band play on screen, you know, on on film with her. She 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 sort of appreciated African American artists around her, and she wanted to champion them. So it's a definitely an interesting aspect to her that adds some depth to her story. Yeah, she definitely towed the line on that. I mean, she the maids in her films were unusual in that they were portrayed as having their own lives and their own opinions, and they were really friends and confidants, not so much servants, but I don't think it was done to make a statement. I think it's more just that, um, you know, she grew up in vaudeville. I don't think she, you know, was racist. I think that she was around a lot of um, performers uh, who were people of color. We've talked about a lot of, a lot of like, you know, you found out things that were tall tales and legendary. Uh, You also found out a lot of things that were true, uh, that, you know, is kind of a a great story. Her did you find out the story about her shoes? Because she was only, what, four foot 11? Yeah, we have a picture of her shoes in the film. Um, I think she was five foot. Five foot, okay. And, uh, but, with her, but with her shoes, she was like five eight or something. <laughs> and there was, she, had, she had one shoe, and then she took another shoe and put it on top of that and glued them together. And that's also partly responsible for her walk. You know, she's got right. this very... Um, kind of unique defined walk and I think part of it is just trying to balance on these gigantic platforms wow I tell you what well I tell you what I look forward I'm going to be taping it while I'm watching it uh, the show is American Masters of course on PBS June 16th is May West Dirty Blonde Julia Marquesi and Sally Rosenthal thank you again for being here today thank you so thank much you. for having us Mae West, Dirty Blonde, premieres on June 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on PBS's American Masters. You can find more information about Mae West, Dirty Blonde, at pbs.org. Until next time, the Juno files are now closed.